You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. First Corinthians 13 is a very familiar passage of Scripture, isn't it? Uh, but man, is it rich. This is our second message on this rich passage on love from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, if you remember, the Corinthians were having trouble in the area of spiritual gifts. They were using their spiritual gifts that were divinely appointed for the building up of the church. They were using them rather for selfish means to draw attention to themselves, to, to t- get an advantage for themselves. Additionally, some of them were puffed up with pride because they had what many people considered the more desirable gifts, the ones of, of speaking and, and eloquence and, and public prominent gifts, while others felt that they had inferiority because their gift was not as public. You know, they had a background gift. And so there are all kinds of problems, even around this idea of spiritual gifts, the, 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 the things that God endowed them with. And it seems that the main question that the Corinthians had uh, and they asked Paul concerning the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Uh, Paul answered their questions in, in chapters 12 to 14. And right in the middle of his answer about gifts and prophecy, he um, explains to them that if these gifts are not demonstrated in the atmosphere of love, then it's completely useless, uh, your, your spiritual gifting, because because it needs to be done in love. And a question that, that I've asked myself, and I'm sure you've asked yourself as well, is how do I know that I love? You ever ask that question? How, how do I know that I love that person? Have you ever asked, do I really love this person? Fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't tell us to love and move on. Rather, he goes on to describe what love looks like. One more note, and we're going to read the passage. As we read, uh, particularly verses 4 to 7, that's where we're going to be today, verses 4 to 7, the English has these words as adjectives. You know, love is kind, love is patient. But they're actually not adjectives, they're verbs. And so the point being that love does, love acts. It's more than just a a state of being. So if you'll stand with me as we read, we're going to read the whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. 
As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Lord, we thank you for the, the personification of love, who is Jesus Christ. We thank you for the encouraging and yet convicting word of God. And I pray that we will listen to these words today and see Christ in them. And then, as if in a mirror, look at ourselves, Lord, and show us where we could love better. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. So last week, uh, we began this chapter by explaining how much love matters. Paul argued in verses 1 to 3 that love matters because without it, nothing else will. And he's very descriptive in in the way that he says that. Then in verses 4 to 7, which we'll see today, he, he says that love matters because love makes us like Christ. And then we'll see later on in verses 8 through 13 that love matters because love lasts forever. Very simple chapter, but very rich and full. But I want to do something today. Sometimes there are nuggets that you see in God's Word that you just have to share. If it's lost on you, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't mean to bore you with this, but this was really fascinating to me. I want you to notice the structure because the structure is very important. This is what we we called a a chiasm last time I showed one of these. And I want you to notice the list of definitions of love in verses 4 to 7. It begins positive, and then it goes negative, and then it goes positive. Now normally, in, in writing, what is in the very center is the most important. So the most important part is this right here. And the most important part of that important part would be this little part right here. Love does not insist on its own way. But the question is, why did he stick the negatives right in the middle instead of sticking the positives in the most important place? We're American. We always want to be positive and upbeat. So we stick the the positive in the most important part, right? Why, why Why did they do that? Well, the answer is, why are the negatives in the most prominent place? The answer is that these negatives describe the Corinthians, Literally, if you look at these negatives and then read verse, uh, chapters 1 to 12, you'll see the Corinthians' characteristics, these characteristics described to other Corinthians all the way through it. And so many of these negatives appear in the first 12 chapters. And love is described then in very personal terms. As with all of God's word, we cannot truly begin to understand love until we apply it in our lives. We, we understand that. We, we might know that something we're getting ready to do is going to be difficult. You, you know, uh, if you've done this, if you've gotten on YouTube or something, and if you looked at a car repair and said, oh, that looks pretty simple, and everybody's telling you, no, it's not as simple as you think. And yeah, but he makes it look simple. And then you, then you try it yourself. You realize, wait, this is not as simple as I thought. 
Well, same thing with love. Love is described in uh, personal terms, and we cannot truly begin to understand love until we begin to apply it in our lives. And Paul's primary purpose here is not to instruct the Corinthians. This list of descriptions is not instruction. It is actually change. Change their living habits. He wants them to carefully and honestly measure their life against those characteristics of love and then change where it's needed. One commentator said this, said, Paul is painting a portrait of love, and Jesus Christ is sitting for the portrait. He lived out in perfection all of these virtues that you see here. This list is just a beautiful picture of love. One more thing I want to point out about the structure, because this is important too, and I think this tells you a dominant characteristic of love. I want you to notice that this list of attributes begins, uh, oh, I'm sorry, um, begins and ends with a description of patience. Love is patient. Verse number four, when you skip down to verse number seven, love endures all things. See it, see it all the way down there at the bottom? It, there's two different, these are two different and great New Testament words for love. The first one, love is patient, is the word macrothumi. And it, it literally means far away anger. That's literally what the, it's a compound word. Far away anger is what it means. A person who is patient is able to put anger far away. The bottom one, Love endures all things is the word hypomene, and it means to remain under, to remain under. Meno is a word for remain. Hupomeno means to remain under, and, and it's, it's a different word. In verse number four, love is patient is the word for a powerful person being patient. It's, it's, a, it's a patience of the powerful. David demonstrated this characteristic. Do you remember when he was running from Absalom? And there was this relative of Saul. His name was Shammai. And Shammai, the Bible says, was cursing the, him and his troops, and he was throwing rocks at him. And Abishai, one of his generals, came to him and said, hey, David, you want me to go cut his head off? Remember that story? And David said, uh, no. He patiently took the cursing. That's the patience of a powerful person. Of course, Jesus is the supreme example of a patient, powerful person. Uh, the ridicule and the mockery and, and, and the, the, um, the, 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 the antagonism of the people that he created shows his patience. You probably have heard this story. It's a, it's a very common story of the, the well-known atheist of the 18th century named Robert Ingersoll. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He, he said this. He would often stop in the middle of his lectures and he would say this, I'll give God five minutes to strike me dead for all the things I've said. And of course, he would use the fact that he was not struck dead as proof that God did not exist. Well, there was another Englishman and his name was Theodore Parker, and he said this. He said, and did the gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of the eternal God in five minutes? <laughs> love, love is patient, but love also endures all things. Endures all things is the patience of the powerless. Powerless. 
somebody who cannot do anything about their situation. A, a good example of that is Mary, the mother of Jesus. She stood at the foot of the cross. She, she can do nothing to change the horrible events taking place in, around her, and her only choice is hupomeno, hupomenai, to remain under at a great cost rather than run away. She didn't run from the scene of suffering. She stayed there at the foot of the cross. And of course, Jesus is the supreme example of uh, patience in powerlessness as well as uh, he allowed himself to be crucified. So love is the embodiment of Jesus Christ. And so love is, is patient. Two different kinds of patience, and I think that's probably one of the things that we learn very quickly about love, isn't it? The patience of love. As we read this list, and as we study this list for today, remember that Jesus is the perfection of all these elements. He embodies love at its fullest. We, on the other hand, can never embody all these traits, can we? There is no way that we can because we're not Jesus Christ. We're not God. As I studied uh, these verses this week, it was both encouraging and it was convicting. It was encouraging because I was looking at Jesus Christ and realizing and seeing how he related to me, how patient he was with me, how kind he is, and, and, and all those ways that Christ deals with me. But it was convicting at the same time because the Spirit was showing me how I don't love like Christ and how I need to love like Christ. And so I hope that you will be encouraged and convicted today as, as well. And so let's jump into the list. We already saw patience. Let's look at kindness. Love is kind. The word kind here is, is a word that means to be useful. It's, it's a useful trait. It, it means uh, a way of demonstrating compassion and mercy. It's a generosity of soul that looks out for somebody else's welfare acts of kindness. It's reaching out through deeds and demonstrating compassion and mercy. Uh, that, that's what kindness is. Kindness isn't a disposition as much as it is an action, a usefulness. Probably the most famous verse about kindness is found in Romans 2.4. And the word is used twice. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. You see, kindness is not a feeling. Kindness is an action. It's a usefulness. Think about how useful God is for us. He thinks of everything, doesn't he? He thought enough of us to give us a nose. So, men, when you give your wife the flowers today for Valentine's Day, you did get flowers, right? They, your wife can smell the flowers. He gave you a tongue so that as, as you enjoy a good meal today, you can taste that good food. How thoughtful and kind and generous is God. And, and he's continually that way. And he bears uh, up under e, uh, the, the opposition of evil men. And he just heaps kindness upon kindness upon kindness to them, hoping and that they will repent. In, in, I shouldn't say hoping, but in, in the, in the uh, purpose that they would repent. 
And so kindness is more than a feeling, it's doing helpful things. But let's look at some of the negatives on the list here. Remember, as we get into this, this is a description of the Corinthians. This is a description of that church. Number one, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Paul is telling them to stop being envious. The word for envy here, the root word means to be jealous, to have a strong desire for something. Paul criticized them several times for their jealousy and strife in uh, chapter 3 and verse number 3. Chapter 2, he did as well. And one of the hardest battles that a Christian must fight in their life is the battle of jealousy. Isn't it? The battle against jealousy. There is always someone who's a little better than you or who potentially is a lot better than you or me. I, I, uh, I have faced that before. I, I've told this story so many times. I just remember having my roommate, his name is Tim in college. Tim was a physics major, never really studied. He said he did, but he didn't. I never saw him study. He always played basketball. And here I was, this, this um, ministerial student, and I was just really beating my head during finals, studying and studying hour upon hour. He walks in with a basketball in his hand. Hey, you want to go play basketball? I'm thinking to myself, can you see I'm studying, Tim? I said, no, I, I really need to study, Tim. Yeah, I should probably do that too. I've got a Calc 4 or some, some kind of test like that. I don't remember what it was. He pulled out his book, thumbed through the book, Put it away, so I'm done. I'm going to go play basketball. So um, I was a bit jealous. I'm not going to lie. Jealousy and envy come in two forms, though. Probably best illustrated by a, a story that I read this week. I thought it was a really cool story in Beirut describing the difference between a Lebanese capitalist and a Syrian communist, socialist. A Lebanese capitalist noticed a man driving by in a brand new Mercedes and says, ah, someday I will own a car like that. On the next block, the Syrian socialist observes that man driving by and says, one day we're going to drag that dog out of his car. We're going to thrash him and force him to walk like the rest of us. And you know, jealousy, um, uh, in the first case, jealousy creates envy while in the second, envy creates resentment of another's achievement. Love does not fall prey to either one of these, does it? When love sees someone who is popular and successful and beautiful or talented, it's glad for them. It's never jealous of them. A loving person is never jealous. A loving person is glad for the success of others, even when that that success works against your own success. If you really love people, you will be glad for their success, even when it means you're not as successful. That's what love is. That's a hard one, isn't it? But let's go on. Love not only is not jealous or envious, it's also not boastful. It's also not boastful. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is used Someone who loves does not parade their accomplishments around. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. 
Bragging, on the, other, on the other hand, is trying to make people jealous of what we have. You see, there, there are two sides of a, of, of a coin. Uh, William Barclay, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, the Scottish minister, he said, true love will always be far more impressed with its own unworthiness than its own merit. I think you can identify with that because as you grow in Jesus Christ, and you think about your great salvation, do you not just fall to your knees sometimes and say, Lord, I am not worthy? How could you bless me the way that you have? Lord, I love you for blessing me in my unworthy state. And we, we understand our unworthiness. The Corinthians obviously had a problem with boasting. They wanted the prominent spiritual gifts. They were impressed by worldly wisdom. You remember that back all the way back in chapters 1, 2, and 3? And they generally, they wanted to build themselves up. They lacked unity. All these things point to a problem with boasting. Now there's, there's two types of boasting. There's the boasting of a person who doesn't like himself and compelled to build themselves up with stories of personal success. And you've seen those kind of people, right? The other type is the form of flattery that tries to manipulate Oh, that is the best meal I've ever had in my life. Hyperbole. You sang the most beautiful song. Pastor, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> Love does not need to boast about itself, and it makes no attempt to control others through flattery. Love is not boastful. Love also is not arrogant. Love is not arrogant. The word literally is to puff up. If you, if you remember the King James, that's what it says. Love is not puffed up, doesn't it? Love is not puffed up. The Corinthians had a real problem with arrogance. Paul mentions their arrogance six times in this letter. Most appalling was the group that were proud of the man who was sleeping with his father's wife. They're literally boasting about that freedom. Everything good that the Corinthians had came from the Lord, and yet, and so therefore, they had no reason to be boastful or arrogant. And yet, they were, they were puffed up and conceited about their knowledge of doctrine, about their spiritual gifts, about the famous teachers that they had. They would do well, they would have done well to know about a future missionary named William Carey. You've heard of William Carey, right? He's commonly known as the father of, of modern missions. He was brilliant. A brilliant linguist responsible for translating the Bible into 34 different languages and dialects. He had been raised in a simple home in England. And uh, during his early adult years, he was uh, a cobbler. Well, he was in India, and he was at a dinner party, and he was often ridiculed for his, his uh, low birth, you know, the status in, in England, the different uh, social groups. 
and his former occupation. There was a, there was a, a dinner party one evening, and a snob looked at him and said, I heard, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker, trying to put him down. And he looked at that person and said, oh no, your lordship, I was not a shoemaker, I was only a shoe repairman. You see, Carey understood where he was, and he was not arrogant, he was not puffed up at all. Love is not rude. The word translated rude, this is fascinating study for me this week. Uh, this word literally means a shameless deed. Love does not do shameless deeds. Or love does not uh, display indecent behavior. We don't know those words anymore in America, do we? It, it, it's someone who is ill-mannered. A rude person does not care enough about others to act politely. A rude person doesn't care who they offend and doesn't care enough to be gracious and considerate either. All culture has lost this idea altogether, hasn't it? Do you remember um, Christ's parable about the wedding banquet? The, this king had a wedding banquet, and in walked one of the guests, and he was dressed inappropriately. Remember that, the wedding garment? And what do we do with that parable? We automatically think robes of righteousness, you know, going to heaven in that parable, right? But you also need to remember the social context in Israel. It was shameful for you not to show up in the garment that was provided for you or the garment that was required of you. It was shameful and it was rude. And in that parable, the same word is used for rude, talking about the person without the wedding garment. It was indecent and shameful. The flippant comment, I don't care how I look, is not a mark of humility. It's a lack of love. Basically, that person is, saying, is obligating everybody else to no, take note, I don't care about what you think about me. Love, love says, on the other hand, I will act in a manner that signals my love and respect for those around me. Christ was a perfect example of how love acts. Even though he knew the hearts of the evil men around him, he was never rude or socially improper. He loved even his enemies. And of course, we know that he loved us, right? We, uh, when we we're enemies of him. Love does not insist on its own way. Now, this is the, this is the climactic part of the, the, the description. This is the very center. This is the most important detail that's being thrown in here. And it's placed at the center of the list because it's the key to every other trait. What is the word love? It's agape. Remember, we, when most Christians describe this word, they describe it as a selfless sort of love, right? And so this is the complete opposite. It does not insist on its own way. It's a key to every trait. It's at the center because Christ is the epitome of self-giving love. He never insisted on his own way. He always insisted on what was best for those around him and what was glorifying to his Father. Love is self-giving. 
And if love is self-giving, then selfishness is the opposite of love. Selfishness is at the heart of every fallen human being. We want our own way, don't we? Just move out of my way, people. I'm driving down this road. Drive the speed I want you to do. Drive in the lane I want you to be in. Nobody else ever thinks that way, do we? We are preoccupied with self. The Corinthian believers were models of what loving Christians should not be. They were selfish in the extreme. They didn't think about it. They didn't share the food at the love feasts. I prepared all this good food, and it's all mine, and you can't have any. Remember that children's song, It's Mine and You Can't Have Some? With you I will not share it. For if I share it with you, you'll have some too. Y'all want to sing it together? <laughs> they, were, they were selfish in the extreme. They protected their rights to the point of suing fellow believers in pagan law courts. And they wanted what they thought were the, the quote-unquote, the best spiritual gifts, the most prominent ones. They wanted them for themselves. Instead of using spiritual gifts for the benefit of others, they tried to use them to their own advantage. Remember, Paul's accusation was that they were using their spiritual gifts not for others, but for themselves. And this is the exact opposite of Christ, because remember, the Bible says that he came not to be served, but to serve. He never sought his own welfare, but the welfare of others. And so love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. Uh Uh-oh. Love is not irritable. Put it another way, love is not touchy. You know what I mean when I say somebody's a touchy person? Be careful how you talk to that person. Be careful how you act around them. When you love, you do not allow yourself to get irritated or upset or angry at things said or done against you. Man, this is a hard one, isn't it? Someone who loves is willing to absorb hostility in order to love the other person. Knowing that by absorbing it, that maybe that hostility will go away. Being irritable, by the way, is the other side of what we just covered does not insist on its own way. It's it's on the other side of seeking it. The person who is intent on having his own way, is always irritated, always easily angered. Think about it. When do you get irritated and angry? When you want something really bad and you don't get it, right? That's all of us. Ministry, in ministry, one runs into all kinds of irritable people. And you know when it usually occurs? When you're the most excited about something in ministry, when you're the most excited, irritable people make themselves known. I remember early in my youth ministry, I started a teen newsletter. This is, this is in the early days of desktop publishing. You remember that in the 90s? And the programs were unsophisticated compared to what we have today. And I would spend a long time creating a, a front and back newsletter and it 
it was complete with pictures of the teenagers. I'd take those pictures, and I had a guy in a print business that would scan them for me, and and then uh, get a file to me, and um, and I would I would take pictures of the teenagers and stick them in the newsletter and and talk about the activities and and things. And one day, I had an angry mother come to me, and she said, "I want to talk to you about the newsletter." It's okay. She said. You know, my daughter has not been in one, my daughter's picture has not been in one of those newsletters. I was flabbergasted. And I would never answer this way today, but I was young in my 20s, and I just looked at her and I said, you actually have time to look for that? And she said, yes, I do, and I've gone through every single one, and her picture's never been in one. Love is not irritable. By the way, I took all the fun out of the newsletter because then I had to start thinking, okay, who was in last month's and who, you know, how that is, right? Love is not irritable. I think the easiest place for us to show a lack of love is our irritability at home. I'm married, they're stuck with me, or they're my children and they're in my home. And we can be as irritable as we want. And that's simply a lack of love. Aren't you glad our Lord is not irritable? Well, I know I am. Love is not resentful. It means it keeps no record of wrongs. The word here you're familiar with, I'm sure, is, a, is an accounting term. Legizomai. Legizomai. It means to take into account like a chart of accounts. Love allows the hurts of the past to fade away. Of all of Paul's admonitions on this list, this one is the most difficult, isn't it? When we hurt deeply, the pain of those wounds remain for a very long time. If with the last word, love is not irritable. If with the last word, love absorbs evil, then here we see that love manages to erase the ledger of wrongs suffered, which the mind unprompted too easily recalls. In counseling, we run into people all the time who say something like this, I have forgiven him. But then you get into the conversation and they drag up everything that happened in the past. But I've forgiven them, but they're dragging it up. That's that ledger. That ledger keeps coming up. Every time they have a disagreement, they run through the trespasses of their spouse, or they use the wrongs done in the past that supposedly have been forgiven, use the wrongs done in the past as continual leverage against the other person. That, my friend, is the very opposite of love. I see it in church as well. Leadership in a church can do very well. And it just takes one slight, one oversight, one mistake, and off the party goes. That church, blank. You lay it out there. This one big problem. We know we're not perfect, are we? 
What do we want from people when, when, they, when they do this from us, to us? When somebody starts throwing up the chart of accounts, what do you want them to do for you? We always want them, you know what? I, I'm doing the best I can. That's our thought, isn't it? And yes, I make mistakes. Well, we have to offer that to other people as well. Some, some will read what Paul said, though, and say, you know what? Paul recorded a list of what he had suffered earlier in 1 Corinthians. I don't know if anybody was thinking that. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 to 13, he, he lists out all the stuff done to him. So how do we reconcile this with Paul's advice that love does not keep a record of wrongs? Well, there's a book by a Christian uh, who suffered greatly at the hand of the communists during the Soviet era. And this is what he said. I want to read from this book. He said, we will not forget, like quotation marks, forget so as to be able to rejoice. Listen to what he says. We will rejoice and therefore let those memories slip out of our minds. He's talking about persecution suffered at the hands of evil people. Then he went on to say, the reason for our non-remembrance of wrongs will be the same as its cause. Our minds will be wrapped in the goodness of God and in the goodness of God's new world. And the memories of wrongs will wither away like plants without water. And so how Paul never charges the wrongs against other people's accounts, but rather he, let, he remembered them, but they slip away. They're like a wilted plant because he's, he's just wrapped up in the glory of God and Jesus Christ in heaven. And that's what we have to do as well. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says this, Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. There's that word, the gizemai. Uh, not count his sin. That's what God does for us, isn't he? Are we blessed? We are blessed. And of course, Christ is a personification of love. And so 2 Corinthians says this, 519, that is, in Jesus Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to the message of reconciliation, trusting us with that message. And so God has not counted our trespasses against us. We are not to count others' trespasses against them either. Well, that's part of the list, but I'm going to have to stop right here. Let me ask you a question. Are you encouraged? Are you encouraged by what the Lord has done? Are you encouraged by the picture of Christ that's painted here? I am. But you know what I found out this week? You know what I found myself doing? Sitting right, right over there in my office, trying to excuse some other behaviors. And wherever we're defensive and wherever we find ourselves trying to excuse ourselves, guess what? That's where we're not loving. And that's where we need to ask the Lord to help us to be more like Him in love. Lord, what a wonderful passage. So rich. So picturesque. We thank you that 
When we read scripture, we see the portrait of love. His name is Jesus Christ. We are called Christians, which means we're called little Christ. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will be encouraged by your great love. And Lord, where we see ourselves falling short, that we will ask you for the strength and grace in our hearts to love better like Christ is loved. In his name, amen.